Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with a podcast series about the ideas that are in the air and up for discussion at the ninth annual Global Peter Drucker Forum here in Vienna. With me is Rita McGrath, who's Professor of Management at Columbia Business School, a widely published author, and she's been talking here at the Drucker Forum about the growth imperative in business. What's your take, Rita? The question is always, well, how much does growth really matter to an existing organization? And my colleagues and I have developed one metric, which we believe can start to give you a closer read on that. And the metric we call the imagination premium, and it allows us to split out that portion of a firm's market capitalization, which for a public firm is uh, you know, a measure of its value into the value that's attributable to cash flow from ongoing operations versus the value that's attributable to expectations for growth. And what our research suggests is that you don't want to be too low on that metric, that Buffalo Wild Wings would be an example, or even very well-regarded firms such as General Electric. If investors don't believe the growth story, bad things can happen. You attract activists, take over bids, your CEO gets shown the door. So those are all not very good from the perspective of a company. Too high isn't really good either, because then you've got so much of your value wrapped up in basically investor imagination, right? They think, oh, you know, Tesla, it's going to take over the world and it's going to change what we're doing about batteries and it's got this massive growth story. And what ends up happening is, so Volvo comes out and says, oh, we predict the end of the you know internal combustion engine and Tesla loses $10 billion of market capitalization in a matter of a few days. So our hypothesis is you don't want to be too low where there's no growth seen in your profile. You don't want to be too high where it's just pure fluff. You have to be in the sweet spot, which is where expectations match with possibilities. That's a very good way of putting it. Aren't you handing over the main measurement of a company to entirely to the money people? Well, this would be an interesting way of looking at it for publicly traded companies. I'm not a huge fan of the notion that companies should be run for the benefit of shareholders. I think they're just one stakeholder of many. What I do think, though, is you know we have the reality that publicly traded companies are dependent on what the markets think of them. And they're dependent on a lot of different numbers. So your free cash flow, your return on investment, your growth in total shareholder returns over time. I don't think we can just write those numbers off. And so what I've been looking for, and this is my latest in a series of efforts, is a counterweight to some of those measures. Let's look at this imagination premium a little bit, because it's where things can get done with other people's money at the early stages of the application of, say, a new technology isn't it? The rush to fund something that is uncertain. Uh, Look at Amazon, for example. That's been all uh, imagination, all expectation for the last 20 years, hasn't it? But a great deal has been achieved. Imagination gap, if you like. Yeah, and Amazon's a fantastic example. Their imagination premium is actually 2.42, which means that about a quarter of their market capitalization is due to what investors expect them to produce in terms of cash flow, which is like nothing. And three quarters of it is all due to expectations for growth. Which well, for a lot a- of people used to say that it should be called Amazon.org because it was never going to make money. <laughs> That's an interesting thing. And like many of your listeners, I'm a huge Amazon customer. I'm a big fan. I think what they're doing is remarkable. At the same time, they're what some people have called a monopsonist, which is unlike being a monopolist, where you're locking others out of the market and charging high prices, what Amazon's been able to do, because it's basically been given a free pass from the markets, is to keep prices so low that it's hard for others to compete. 
until something happens. Now, is that, from your imagination, premium point of view, a good thing when Amazon becomes realistic, in quotation marks, about its pricing, which inevitably, at some stage, it will, having achieved this enormous market share? You know, it's hard to double your size if you're a $467 billion market cap company, which is about what Amazon was the last time I looked. It's probably another $20 billion worth now. But I think there is a point at which you can't, you can't be the entire economy, right? And the rate that they're going, that is increasingly where we're headed. So at some stage, they're going to have to become like a conventional profit-making company. Well, not as long as they can continue to play the game of convincing investors that there's huge growth potential there. I guess my question is just for them. At some point, regression to the mean kicks in, and at some point, you just get too big. You, know, you get too unwieldy. That's healthy from your point of view, that regression to the mean, because it means that the imagination premium, which is a sort of distorting factor about a company, begins to reduce. That's exactly right, yeah. And I would say Amazon is a, a big outlier in this. Um, a much more normal range would be, for example, Microsoft right now is about 1.2. And it's reflective of what Nadella's been able to do in just a couple of years there. It's astonishing that they used to really be in the tank. I mean, uh, in the Balmer years, Microsoft was basically being treated as a value stock at best, but not a growth stock. A very mature company. Exactly, a very mature company. And what Nadella's been able to do is say, no, we're going to shift from a focus on just revenue and profits. We're going to shift to a focus on the leading indicators. And as he would tell you, one of the leading indicators is usage. So if I can get customers loving and using Microsoft products, the revenues will come later. So that's a much more imagination premium friendly way of thinking than let's run it for cash. So the imagination premium, although the way you put it forward, uh, sort of tainted uh, an overinflated idea, is actually a way of uh, going in a new direction for a company like a mature company like Microsoft, going into uh, the cloud in a big way, for example. Yeah, and it reflects a couple of things. So it reflects the story that you're telling. It reflects the believability of that story. So a fascinating example to me of a company that really took a bold move to change their business model is Adobe. And you may remember a few years ago, Adobe was one of the original companies that sold shrink wrap box software, and you paid up front for it, and then you paid a certain upgrade fee. And if you wanted a new thing, it came whenever the releases came out, and, and that was the model. And the investor view of that model was it was great because you got all the money up front. And then every couple of years you would release a new version and you'd get all that money up front again. So what Adobe had to do when they decided to shift from that model to a cloud-based, subscription-based software model, so no more boxes, no more shrink wrap, no more nothing, was convince the analysts of what were the right metrics they should be looking at. And Adobe was very forthcoming saying, look, when we go from a model where we get all the money up front to where we get money on a subscription basis, you've got to value us differently. You know, you've got to look much more at things like retention and willingness to probe into new segments because now we can be affordable to segments that couldn't afford the shrink-wrapped software. You've got to be prepared for our revenue to go down while we make this transition. I mean, they were brutally honest with the analysts, and I think they've been rewarded for it because they told people what to expect. Where I think companies pay a big price is when they say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's all about growth. And then either it doesn't happen or they change the story. You know, this actually is one of my um, observations about GE, which is it's changed its story about what's going to drive its growth many, many times during the recent history. So there was a period where it was eco-imagination. Remember, it was all going to be green. And then there was a period where it was imagination 
I don't know, battles or something. There have been about four or five different themes, and every time an investors kind of get used to one theme, they go and change it. And that makes people crazy because they don't know what the basis is that we should be evaluating the company on. Okay, turn this into advice about uh, how a company should behave. You've got some interesting analyses there, but they're of existing things. Some advice, please, about. So there are two frameworks that we use to help companies think this through. Uh, The first one is what we're calling the Innovation Maturity Scale. And that basically goes from one to eight, where a level one firm is really focused on exploiting existing assets. So their imagination premium would be very low. They're good operators. They may be very efficient. And, you know, commodity-based firms or firms doing trading or firms that are regulated electric utilities, right? So your main competitive thing happens once a year when you meet with your regulator, and the rest of the time it's all about efficient operations. And I'm not being critical, but... That's a sort of 19th century way that uh, uh, modern capitalism was founded, isn't it? Businesses, companies that could do one thing and they stuck to it and did it well. Exactly. Yeah. Natural monopolies. You know, so the big old railroads or telephone companies or something like that. Then as we move up the scale, what you start to see is innovation becomes something that's not one person's imagination. So, for example, level two companies is what we call uh, innovation theater. So we send teams off to Silicon Valley and people come back with the t-shirts and they wear hoodies at work or whatever. They bring their dogs, you know, whatever it is. But and it's it not... doesn't change the company very much, but it makes people feel good about it. Yeah, you know, it's like going to the theater, right? It's exciting. It's fun. Thousands of post-it notes we die. We can talk them. about it. Exactly. We, can, we can make videos about it. Yeah, and we can get, get the cool kids, you know, with the wild haircuts and the tattoos to come in. It's awesome. But Meanwhile, you're still making the same stuff in the same old way and managing it the same old way. Exactly. So it isn't until you start to move up the scale that you start to see measures. You start to see pull measures for innovation, not just push measures. Like immature companies think the big problem is getting new ideas. Good ideas is not the issue. So it really has to be building three proficiencies. One is indeed ideation. The second is incubation, taking an idea and having some place, some mechanism, some environment in which to grow it, right, so that you can see if it's actually going to work in the marketplace. And then the part where a lot of companies really stumble is what I call acceleration, which is you've got your little venture, and it's tiny relative to your big company. If it's going to become part of the corporate mainstream, now you've got to be a grown-up. You've got to bring in the lawyers, and the computer systems have to be reliable, and things have to add up, and my God, HR and compliance become important, and it's got to make that phase change. You've just said a phrase which is enormously important, if it's going to become part of the corporate mainstream. Now, to the existing corporation and all the people and their hierarchies, the way they do things at the moment, this New innovation from outside is a great big threat, isn't it? It can be. It can be. Because it's going to take capital, which I want to use to replenish my production lines with, and use it on something completely different. And that's a real problem for an established company, isn't it? Yes, it can be. And it is exacerbated when competitive advantages, as I argue in my own research, are short. So if you were a tire company back in the 1950s in the U.S., Basically, you knew you would sell whatever you could make, because think about where the rest of the world was. Europe was still recovering from the war. China was shut. India was shut. Nobody was doing business with Latin America. Africa, nobody even thought about. Um, So, you know, pretty much you had the world to yourself. Um, And you made more tires more efficiently, and you made money doing that, just that. 
Exactly. And I think we've moved on a fair way from that way of thinking about competition. But to come back to your question of whether new businesses are threatening, they can be. But now this is where I think management plays an enormous role. So let me give an example. Um, one of the companies I work with is a company that does very glamorous things. They, they take trees and they make paper out of them. They make the paper The Economist is printed on. They're called UPM, which stands for Universal Paper Mills. And they're based in Finland. And some years back, their CEO said, wait a minute, paper is not a growth business. I need to think about the future of my company. What are we good at? And it turns out to take trees and make them into paper, you have to be really good at enzyme technology. So what he did was he basically split the company apart into the core businesses, which are running the paper mills and doing the two-by-fours and all the other stuff, and the biofior businesses, he called them, which are biology-based new things that we're going to try to figure out where to deploy enzyme Run by the same board of directors, but otherwise separate. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Otherwise separate, I think, is enormously important. It's the graspable way of doing this sort of innovation. Exactly. And I thought this was stupid. I mean, this is the place where I was flamingly wrong. I just said, oh, you know, who wants to run the core business? I mean, to come in every day and your job is to generate cash so all the glamorous new people can get the great opportunities. As you said, in many companies, that would be seen as a horrible threat. And so I thought, well, I'm going I'm to show you how smart I am. So I went off and interviewed the managers in charge of the mature businesses. And what I found surprised me completely because these guys felt like Rambo. You know, it's like we are defending the fort. We are the present of this company that's going to provide the foundation for the future. And, you know, while those biofuel people get their act together, we are the main kind of event. They were really proud of their role in basically running a mature business for cash. Now, what was fascinating to me about the way this particular CEO had framed their future was, he said, look, by the time those little businesses get to be a substantial part of our portfolio, we're going to need you. We're going to need your ability to run supply chains well and keep track of procurement and operate with quality and do things exactly as they are supposed to be done because otherwise the enzymes blow up and that's not good for anybody. Right now, that's not your role, but down the future it will be. Interesting. It's a Finnish example because you have one of the great examples of uh, of corporate evolution in Finland with Nokia who started off as a a wood products company, became a cable company because paper went into wrapping up the cables and then threw cable away to become a wireless phone company. I think that's one of the great evolutionary stories any business has ever been through, and it was finished. They think differently in Finland, actually. Well, and I would also say... You know, Nokia has a history of nearly blowing up and finding its footing again, right? And they're doing it now. You know, they've done this huge uh, play in network operations. Uh, they've basically divested of their handset business, which if I had said this 10 years ago, everybody would have looked at me and gone, you are crazy. But yeah, they're, they're reinventing themselves again. Are they two Finnish examples of um, the kind of thing you think every business, every maturing business ought to be aware of then? I think they're good examples. I think Finland, you know, as a national location, you know, they're squeezed in between Europe and Russia. They've had huge ups and downs in their own economy over the years. And where I think they've landed as an economy is they've said, look, we need to get really good at knowledge, really good at tech, and we need to really think about how we're building entrepreneurial skill in the company. Um, So in November of 2017, they got this huge conference called the Slush Conference. Have you heard about this thing? It's like 18,000 people from all over the world come to this. And 
even the Finns will tell you nobody wants to be in Finland in November. You know, the snow hasn't yet come, so it's just really dark and cold and miserable and wet. Um, and yet they've decided to do this high-tech entrepreneurship conference to feature entrepreneurs from all over the world. And they all come to Finland and uh, share what they know with each other. So I think it's an interesting example of a national view that just because we get set back, we're not out. You know, we're, we're going to figure out some way of coming back into the game. Some people would say, in answer to your quest for corporate evolution, that there is a right lifespan of a corporation, and at the end of this, they should cash out and walk away from what they were doing, rather than try to evolve. That, in other words, the real liveliness in an economy comes from the startups, the entrepreneurs, rather than the incumbents trying to regain a place for themselves in the new world. Yeah, that is a very legitimate point of view. And really, when you think of most companies that mess this up, they don't disappear. They don't go bankrupt. They get acquired. Few organizations that mess up disappear completely. I mean, there are still people who worked at DEC and worked at you know, Data Central, Data General, and worked at all these other firms that are still out there, and those capabilities are still there. So that's one perspective. I do think that in the ruthlessness, almost, of what Schumpeter famously called creative destruction, we're not very good at dealing with the adjustment penalty. So yes, perhaps for an economy as a whole, it makes perfect sense for the manufacture of textiles, for example, to go off to Asia. But what do you do with those communities left behind, those capabilities left behind, the people that are struggling? And I don't think we've got fantastic answers for that. So that's one body of concern. The second one is, you know, large corporations are not just their market value or their market cap or their imagination premier, many of those things. They have deep skills and capabilities and know-how and networks of connections that I think are incredibly valuable that are very difficult to replicate on open markets. So there is a benefit to me in saying, okay, if I'm DuPont, you know, and I'm a black powder manufacturer, but aside from that, I'm really good at doing very dangerous things, very safe. How do I now take that into the future? You can't just buy that on the street. I mean, that's a deep capability that's got to be built up over time. And I think when we lose sight of that and say anything can be bought and sold and broken up, we lose that depth. The good news, and I think for your listeners, what I would really encourage you to do is get educated about this. You know, we've got decades now of research which can illuminate the practices involved in getting this right. So just as a simple example, ask yourself how many people in the organization actually get rewarded for something that has to do with innovation. So, you know, and I, it can be very modest, some minor customer improvement, some better way of handling a invoicing or whatever it is. But in a typical company, if you ask the question how much of your personal compensation is due to something that's involved in innovation, overwhelmingly the answer is not at all. I, I don't get rewarded for it. I don't get compensated for it. Nobody even notices if I do it. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that that's how you run your organization. Innovation's not going to be on the agenda. It's simple things like that. So what I see companies do all the time that's a, a terrible mistake is they'll take some promising, typically young person, say, you're going to be in charge of innovation. And then that person goes off and finds a blank sheet of paper and makes it up from scratch. And so my encouragement is, please don't repeat the mistakes that many of us, you know, who have the battle scars, go make your own, but get educated about where the state of the art is before you go leaping off into some brand new innovation program. Professor Rita McGrath from Columbia Business School, thank you very much indeed. This is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, another podcast coming up soon.